Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. is one of the most frequently performed American orchestral composers of his generation. He's conducted and been commissioned by ensembles around the world, including the London Symphony, the Philharmonia Orchestra, the London Philharmonic, the Kennedy Center for the National Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Pops, Cincinnati Pops, and the President's Own United States Marine Band, along with the Philadelphia Orchestra, Cleveland Orchestra, Pittsburgh Symphony, Houston Symphony, Dallas Symphony, Nashville Symphony, and Hollywood Bowl Orchestra. Boyer's Grammy-nominated work, Ellis Island, The Dream of America, has become one of the most performed American orchestral works of the last 15 years and was featured on PBS's Great Performances in 2018. In 2019, Boyer received the Ellis Island Medal of Honor, which is officially recognized by both houses of Congress as one of the most prestigious American awards. Peter Boyer is also active in the film and television music industry. He has contributed to more than 35 feature film scores from all the major movie studios and has composed scores for the History Channel and even arranged music for the Academy Awards. Peter, it's so great to have you on One Symphony today. I wanted to start out by asking you about your early career and how you got into music. You've mentioned that you came a little bit late into classical music, and you're a fantastic composer. You write these gorgeous symphonies and melodies. And the more different composers living, obviously, that I meet, this idea of lateness doesn't bother them. In fact, it seems to enhance their ability to adapt, their ability to create their own career, great music, or to create, you know, to take classical music to another level. Can, can you maybe kind of talk about your upbringing and, and maybe touch on that idea of that we think of in classical music that you have to start very early to have any kind of esteem or to kind of have a running start, so to speak? Sure. And, and of course, first of all, thank you for having me on. And it's a pleasure to be here and to chat with you. And yes, I mean, the idea of what is early and what is late as far as starting as a composer, it's an interesting question. And I think part of it is just context is, you know, to whom are you comparing yourself? And if we think about the prodigies of music history and we think about Mozart and Mendelssohn and Korngold starting seemingly, you know, right out of the cradle or something like that, well, then I definitely didn't do that. So I really started when I was 15. I was a teenager. Um, I was not a child prodigy or anything like that, or not a prodigy of any kind. But of course, plenty of people also start, you know, perhaps in their 20s. So it depends, I think, on how one looks at it. And in my case, I really started as a Billy Joel wannabe. I mean, that was where I was, first of all. I grew up listening to pop music in my household and by and large, not classical music. And my mother, who was a school teacher who also did a lot of um, amateur and semi-professional theater. She loved show tunes, so she had LPs of playing show tunes. I grew up hearing things like Chorus Line and Sondheim, et cetera. So I heard that stuff before I heard anything um, classical. But I loved Billy Joel and Journey and Elton John, and, and that was what I wanted to really emulate when I was a young teenager. So when I started at 15, I started playing piano. I started writing and singing pop songs. And that was primarily what I did for the first couple of years from like age 15 and 16. And interestingly, I was in a high school music history course um, in my junior year at Smithfield High School in Smithfield, Rhode Island. And I think it was a fairly nice luxury to be able to take a whole course uh, in music history as just a high school junior. And it was a very small group of talented and motivated teenagers. I think there were five of us in that class. 
And uh, I, I remember very well my high school music history teacher, a man named Robert Cleesby, he had me accompany very early on because I had a facility at the keyboard from seemingly right away, um, at least by the standards of Smithfield High School at that time. And then I was just fascinated learning about all of you know the sort of things that one learns as a complete newcomer to classical music history. And it so happened that in the course of that year, going chronologically, that in the middle of that academic year, we were hearing about Mozart and the Mozart Requiem. Right at that time, my grandmother, uh, my father's mother, who had bought me this piano and paid for my first lessons, um, she died. And I got this crazy idea that I would compose a requiem for her. And I was 17 at the time. Uh, and it's a long story, but the end of the story is that I did, um, that I spent two years of my life from 17 to 19 writing this requiem with no formal composition training, but a lot of motivation. And I simply said, well, okay, how do requiems work? So I went to the Providence Public Library, and I took out scores and recordings of Requiem Masses, and I played the recordings, and I looked at the scores, and I looked at the texts, and I tried to figure it out. And And over the course of two years, I wrote this piece. Um, and when I was 20 years old, and I was, a uh, at that point, a junior in college at Rhode Island College, I actually conducted two performances of this 40-minute Requiem Mass with 300 performers with a huge chorus and four vocal soloists and a large choir that I had spent two, two and a half years of my life writing and orchestrating. And I had just turned 20 a few weeks before. So I was pretty young to do this, this crazy thing. And that, that ultimately was what set me off on this path of wanting to become a classical composer. I mean, when that piece was over, it had gotten a tremendous amount of attention in my local community because it was a very ambitious thing. And, and a lot of adults who believed in me as a, as a very young composer helped me to make it happen. So it got a lot of attention and it was on the local television stations and local radio and the local newspaper, the Providence Journal wrote about it. And I got into USA Today newspaper. And so there was all this attention. And when that requiem was over, there was just this moment of sort of stunned silence and then huge applause went on a very, very long time. And that was my first real sense of this is what it is to be a, a composer conductor. And I was only 20 and I hadn't had a single formal composition lesson yet. Um, I didn't get those until I went to grad school. So, so over the course of those, you know, five years from age 15 to 20, I guess I traversed a lot of ground from being a Billy Joel wannabe to, to writing this thing. And so that was, you know, that was really the start. And I guess that's a pretty unusual kind of story, but it was really a crucial moment for me as, as a young man wanting to become a composer. I wonder what it is about the Mozart Requiem, because it's, it's funny because when I was about 21, I made an arrangement of the Mozart Requiem for like wind, basically small wind ensemble. Ah, um, uh -huh. So me and all of my friends and in Vienna at this program we were doing could play it. Oh, wow. What is it about that? Because Mozart, it's questionable how much he actually wrote of it, but at the same time, it goes right to the soul, even for young people like us who don't speak Latin. You know, <laughs> what, what is it about that Requiem? And then how much did you incorporate from that actual music or style into your Requiem? That's a good question. I'm sure, to be honest, that along the way there, uh, we must have watched Amadeus, right? We must have watched the movie Amadeus. And of course, it's a superb movie based on a superb play. It is obviously fictionalized or Hollywoodized to quite an extent, although it has you know wonderful uses of Mozart's music. So frankly, I mean, I was too young to question you know the authenticity of that. Um, so I think I was taken in by the story and by the fact that he died while writing. I mean, you know, it's one of the great stories and mysteries of, of music history and this relationship with Salieri and what was it really like and what was it like in, in Peter Schaefer's play and in the movie. So I'm sure that as a young man, I was totally taken in with all of that. But then there's also just the music itself and this idea that there's this tradition that composers for centuries have set this text. And so, you know, we all, I think, start off as composers writing our own versions of other people's music to some extent. I mean, that's how we begin in, in some sense. So I'm sure I did that, and I'm sure I was taken in by the movie. Um, but as far as, you know, stylistically, I think I could say fairly confidently that what I wrote as a very young man, it didn't sound Mozart-like in any way. You know, it had a variety of influences, but I don't think anybody would have heard it as a sort of, you know, Mozart knockoff. 
Now, would I want that piece to be heard in any way today? No, the answer has to be no. But I am pleased that I was able to actually, you know, pull it off at such a young age and get so many people to perform it. But it's still, you know, it falls in the, the juvenile category. Um, it's very young stuff. So you're like Brahms, you just burn all your early music. <laughs> no, <laughs> Throw it in the fire. Burned. It exists. But oh, um, wow. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it certainly exists. And actually, interestingly, right after that was when I started using Finale software. I subsequently, okay. years later, switched to Sibelius software, which is my primary tool for, you know, for composing concert music. Um, but so that was that piece was pre-Finale. Finale was just coming out toward the end of it. And so it was all written by hand. And yeah, man, I do indeed have the full score. And we, I was able to raise enough money to hire a professional copyist who possessed a lot more knowledge than I did to actually do all of the parts, which was wonderful. It was all done by hand. That was all by hand. So then the next piece that I wrote, which was in my senior year of college, was the first time that I dove into Finale. And at that point, it was a Mac SE30, you know, the one that looked like the original Macintosh, the little thing with the handle on it that sat on the desk. Wow. And if you wanted to respace the score, you had to go have dinner while it thought about it. Um, <laughs> so th th we've come a long way in terms of what we can do to create scores. So you're basically from that early age got the full experience because if we read about Beethoven or Mozart, I mean, they were doing all of it. They were producing it. They were overseeing it. They were recruiting the orchestra. They were figuring out the tickets, you know, how they could make money. Can you maybe talk about your career trajectory, you know, maybe some milestones or, or how that was influenced by your ability to really be a producer at such an early age and, and any lessons out of that? Sure. I mean, I think the common thread between then and now uh, has to be a sense of, of entrepreneurship. I mean, I think an entrepreneurial approach to a career is very important. And these recordings of mine, you know, of which, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll be speaking about this, this most recent recording today, but all four of these recordings that I've done, the first of which was when I was 31 years old, the first recording with the London Symphony. So it was 21 years ago, up to now with the, all four of these albums, they've been mammoth endeavors on a personal level, not only to write all of the music, but also to do various forms of fundraising um, and you know, saving, frankly, to be able to pay for these things is an enormous cost. I mean, we are not in an era in which record companies are going to single out a few composers and shower them with fully produced recordings that they pay for. That lasted a short time, I guess, in the late 80s and early 90s, but that's over. So it requires an entrepreneurial approach. And I think also a dedication, a belief that the ultimate end product is going to be worth it because composers by nature, we're pretty solitary folks. So we spend an awful lot of time in our studios and we have to sacrifice a lot of what people might think of kind of normal life activities to just spend the endless, endless hours to try to do what we do and try to do it at the best level. So it requires you know, a great deal of, of perseverance. So I guess, yeah, perseverance and, and entrepreneurship, I think, are key factors. Um, and even then, it doesn't mean it will ultimately work out um, because it's an extremely competitive field. But nonetheless, I think if one really has those qualities and really keeps at it, that's obviously a, a, an important factor in ultimately getting to where one wants to, to be. And one of your unique qualities is that you happen to be a conductor and a composer. And historically, this would have been done. It would have been very strange for somebody to perform music of somebody else two, three hundred years ago. Uh, and it was with Beethoven's inability to connect with the musicians because of his deafness or Tchaikovsky's self-consciousness on the podium to the extent that he was fearful his head would fall off if he didn't yeah. hold on to it. The composer and the conductor started to separate away. Uh, you happen to do both. Can you maybe talk about how that plays out and maybe the advantages and pitfalls of the composer conducting their own music? Sure. I mean, that's obviously a really big question and an interesting one across music history. And certainly, yes, I mean, in the time of Mozart, as you say, the composer would have been the conductor, or the violinist would have been the conductor or leader, you know, so that when we think of a conductor as a separate entity from the composer, we think, I guess, largely of a, of a 19th century construct. And from that point forward, Idols of mine, people to whom I have looked up immensely, 
particularly in the American sphere of your know, American composer conductors, have been both the three composers that I most often cite as influences on my own work uh, would be Aaron Copland and Leonard Bernstein and John Williams. And happily, the third of those, you know, John Williams uh, is obviously very much still with us at age 90 and still producing and happily has achieved a, you know, it's a very overused phrase, but a kind of living legend status that really very, very few composers, I think, in history. The, mo- the, the, the Mozart of our time in many ways. Yes, right? you know, in, in so many ways. And, and it's wonderful that as a side note to that, that this is being fully and totally recognized today and that he can appreciate that. Because I think if one looks back at the very beginning of his career as a conductor outside of the recording studio, and when he first went to the Boston Pops, you know, in the early 1980s, there was a great deal of resistance and this idea of film music in the concert hall, et cetera. There was a lot of difficulty. And if we look at how far we've traversed since then, over the course of 40 years, things have totally changed. And now you have John Williams doing concerts with the Vienna Philharmonic, doing concerts with the Berlin Philharmonic that are, you know, universally regarded. That really, that's a cultural shift that I think is very important. Um, but so all three of those particular individuals were composers and conductors. I mean, Bernstein in particular, whom I never got to meet, although the one and only concert of his, which I ever attended as a 20-year-old college student, um, was his very last concert that he ever conducted at Tanglewood. Oh, August wow. You Pool. were there. That's a famous, the Beethoven 7 and Britain 4C exactly. interludes. And also Bernstein's own arias and barcaroles in what was a brand new version with a Breitsheng orchestration that interestingly was on that very last concert that Bernstein conducted, was not conducted by Bernstein because of his severe illness at that point. And it was conducted by an assistant, Carl St. Clair. And little did I know um, at that time at age 20, that later on that, that very same extraordinary conductor would go on to play such a huge role in my own personal career, that Carl St. Clair would ultimately conduct my music, commission my music, conduct the PBS Great Performances production uh, for television of my piece, Ellis Island. So Carl and I have become close and good friends. And at one point, a long time ago, I, I told him for the first time, I said, you know, the first time I ever saw you conduct was at Bernstein's last concert. I was in the second row for that because I had happened uh, to buy those tickets, at, you know, when they went on sale, the day they went on sale, which would have been, I don't know, like March of 1990. So I was a college student and it was the summer between my sophomore and junior years in college. So yes, that's the only time I ever saw Bernstein was was his very last concert. But nonetheless, his influence on me is immense. Um, and I've spent a lot of my life uh, studying his life, his output, his music, uh, his work as a composer and a conductor and an educator and a thinker. And I've subsequently become pretty good friends with uh, his daughter, Jamie Bernstein. Um, and when I composed my my symphony, my so far one and only symphony, which was premiered in 2013 uh, with the Pasadena Symphony with me conducting and then recorded with the London Philharmonic, I actually dedicated my symphony to the memory of Leonard Bernstein. So going back to you know the, the point of your question is that in my case, these composer conductors have been extremely influential on me and being able to watch video of them actually conducting their own music has been a tremendous learning resource. And obviously that's something that really wasn't possible in the 19th century or, or even the early 20th century. We have this great visual and, and oral record of how they conducted their music and it will always be here. And so that, I think that's a wonderful thing. So that's, that's influenced me a great deal in terms of what I have set out to try to do. mentioned, obviously, the major American influences, Copeland, Bernstein, John Williams. A little earlier, you mentioned Korngold. And I'm curious about this idea of the American voice, because when I hear your music, I feel like that you've taken the torch of (laughs) what, if you could personify what is American, and of course, like the Ellis Island piece, and you deal with a lot of sort of historical, political subjects. Can you maybe talk about how that has evolved and your concept of what an American voice in music is? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's 
It's such a big question, um, and it's a question that I think about a lot. You know, we are such an eclectic nation, obviously. Uh, there are so many kinds of composers, so many stylistic backgrounds, so many geographical backgrounds who have either come to America or are themselves first generations or their parents have come to America and from so many different places. So it can't ever mean one thing to just be an American composer. And that diversity, I think, is very valuable. And I think we're living in a time right now in which that diversity is being explored more and more. And I think that's very healthy. As for me personally, I feel like the music that I compose is a reflection of the music that I love. Because these composers are so important to me, um, and I've spent a lot of time studying their music, I think inevitably the choices that I make when I sit down and actually compose and I choose notes and I choose instruments, they reflect all those hours of score study and of listening, et cetera. I could very easily you know, have other kinds of American composers that I might look up to and seek to in some way reflect their legacies. But it, it happens to be, you know, these particular composers and others, I should say, I mean, you know, certainly Barber to some extent and in a different way, Charles Ives, um, I have a couple early pieces of mine, I think, reflect that more. But, you know, what is the American sound and what is it with an orchestra? Of course, Aaron Copeland was asked this on a number of occasions. And, you know, he often, he spoke in very general terms about it, but he, he used the term directness on a couple of occasions. There's a directness to it. There's a directness in the way that the music works. Obviously, the music that I write, um, by and large, is melodic music. So, you know, that in and of itself is something that for a time was, you know, not okay in many spheres to, to write good old-fashioned melodic music. And certainly that's something that Bernstein encountered a great deal. Um, and there are, you know, interesting stories about rehearsals for his Scottish Symphony and the kinds of reactions from certain folks, especially younger composers, you know, who were admiring all of the 12-tone stuff. And then there was a big diatonic tune and everybody sort of, you know, threw up their hands at that. I think we're in a different time now. And I think that's healthy that it's okay to write melodic music. It's okay to write direct music that appeals to people. But at the same time, I try very hard to strive for craftsmanship. I don't stop writing a piece until I'm satisfied with it. And it often takes me a very, very long time to be satisfied with it. And so that's an extremely subjective thing. It's very hard to explain what makes me feel like this piece works or it doesn't work. And so therefore I need to keep working on it. I need to keep refining it and improving it. But I think being in some sense a follower of these great American composers and having spent so much of my time listening to them and studying their scores, I think through a kind of osmosis, it has found its way into my music. So it's very kind of you to say what you've said, and, and other people have said that to me too. And, and I just try to, with each commission and each piece, just simply to do the best that I can and not, not think to myself, hey, am I writing an American sounding piece? I just try to write the best piece that I can. And I think as a, just as a conductor who I arrange sometimes, sometimes I write little ditties for kids concerts. It's so hard to come up with an original melody. And in that <laughs> tonal idiom, especially with the advent of film music, because there's just this basic kind of Hollywood sound that probably also came from John Williams' early work. And it's kind of just the cosmic background radiation in a film, if you will. I wonder if you can kind of talk a little bit about atonal music. You teach a course on 20th century music, and that's kind of the part of music history that didn't really take in some ways. Has that ever influenced you or affected you in any way, this idea of serialism or any kind of tonality for the sake of math or kind of the science behind music as opposed to the heart behind music, I guess? Certainly, you know, as somebody who went through a graduate program in composition, right? So I did a master's and a doctorate um, in composition at the Hart School, which was at that point called the Hart School of Music at the University of Hartford, and then subsequently teaching uh, in my teaching gig at Claremont Graduate University. So I've had to grapple, of course, with all of these trends throughout 20th and 21st century music. You know, again, the idea of diversity, there's so much great repertoire that's out there. And yes, certainly I had to, as part of my studies, come to grips with a great deal of significant music that is not especially tonal. Obviously, one has to learn about, you know, second Viennese school things in Schoenberg and Berg and Webern and the influence of Webern and uh, and subsequently passed on through folks like Boulez and Stockhausen. You know, so all of that, anybody who goes through an academic environment and graduate degrees has to deal with all that. And so I don't want to make overly broad generalizations, but I will say in general, although I found so much of that repertoire fascinating and interesting, I never felt to myself like this is the kind of music I wish to write, that I never 
said, you know, let me see if I can do my 12-tone thing. Other than student things, I've basically never written a 12-tone piece. That's not to say that I don't think that there's a lot of valuable 12-tone music. I mean, I think the Baird Violin Concerto, for example, is a really extraordinary piece and one that um, bears huge study and has layers that one can dig through and, and find really interesting and fascinating things. But did I ever try to write a piece like the Baird Violin Concerto? No. I mean, I, I, for one thing, I don't think I'd know how. It doesn't emerge for me in a kind of natural way. So for better or worse, I have been attracted to melodic music. But then there's another kind of level here, or, or just a broad question, which is about dissonance and the way that one applies dissonance to one's music. And I think, you know, one will find uh, certain amounts of juiciness in some of my music. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's, it's not as if it's all just, you know, all major triads all the time. Um, so I certainly try to judiciously apply dissonance and color and the unexpected chord and the unexpected note that comes from all kinds of influences. Um, and you know, that's, you know, that is essentially ultimately what, you know, tonal composition entails. But I also did, uh, particularly in my earlier pieces and on my first recording, my first recording with the London Symphony of 21 years ago, uh, I, I wrote a piece about the sinking of the Titanic in 1995 when I was 25, two years before James Cameron's famous film. And in that piece, I had actually studied briefly with John Corleano for one summer and so it has um, inevitably Corleano elements, and it also has some Ivesian elements that are pretty fascinating at the end of that piece. And I had another piece called Ghosts of Troy, which was my take on the Iliad, Homer's The Iliad and the Trojan War. And so it's a great deal of dis- So those two pieces have a lot more dissonance in them than, uh, you, know, you know, something like Curtain Razor, for example, or Fanfare for Tomorrow for President Biden's inauguration. So, so some of these things are specific to the piece and the context. And there are lots of influences that have happened along the way that are not in this, you know, kind of more mainstream American vein. I certainly have spent time studying Stravinsky, but I never tried to write music that sounded like Stravinsky, so to speak. So I don't know if that answers your question, but these are all things, you know, one has to grapple with all of this repertoire and all of these diverse styles. Um, And I think ultimately, if one keeps composing, one figures out one's own voice, right? I like these notes versus those notes. And then if people actually play one's music and it gets performed and it gets commissioned and it gets broadcast, then there's a kind of validation like, okay, I'm, I'm on a path that is working for me, so I'm going to keep going on this path. On that path, you touch on a lot of historical subjects, and I'm also thinking of Ellis Island and your most recent recording, Balance of Power. Yes. And you go into the realm of politics. Balance of Power is on Kissinger's 95th birthday, fantastic three-movement piece. Of course, Ellis Island, The Dream of America, touches on the idea of immigration. Generally, we think of politics as something that can divide and music as something that can unite. Can you maybe talk a little bit about those pieces and maybe also how you as an artist enter safely into the political realm? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question um, and a very big one. And also you left out one thing that I'll mention uh, too, which was, which was the piece that I wrote about the Kennedy brothers for the 125th anniversary of, of the Boston Pops. So yeah, it's a very important question, I think. Um, and let me preface it by saying, out of all of these pieces that you've mentioned, the only one in which the idea and the conception was mine was Ellis Island. Ellis Island was something, and I wrote that piece between age 31 and 32, right, 2001 and 2002. And it's become by far my best known piece. And you know, if, if, if anybody knows me at all, it, it, it may well be from, from that. So that piece, Ellis Island, The Dream of America, that piece was completely my own conception um, and in a way reflected my own interest since I was a boy in, in some of these stories about how America's legacy was built through immigration and American history in general. So because that piece achieved a level of, of recognition and prominence, other commissions were offered to me at different times that I didn't pursue and that I had to then decide how to grapple with. And so, you know, just before talking about balance of power, 
So when I was asked in the fall of 2009 by Keith Lockhart of the Boston Pops to compose a piece about the Kennedy brothers, about John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and Ted Kennedy, and for speakers, uh, narrators, and orchestra and chorus, I was completely surprised and I was completely thrilled. And I didn't hesitate one second to say yes to that commission and I'll, I'll figure out a way to do it. And I'm very proud of that piece called The Dream of Zahn, A Portrait of the Kennedy Brothers. So that was an external motivation. I, was, I got a phone call and I was asked to write a piece and so therefore I had to figure out how to do it. So interestingly, then a number of years later in the fall of 2018, I received similarly something completely out of the blue, an invitation to compose a piece that would deal with uh, Henry Kissinger in some way. Now, that's a much harder nut to crack for me um, than, than the Kennedy brothers. Also one uh, you know, on which I, I hesitated to some extent. And so we get sort of into your question about, about politics and music, and that's such a big topic. So I wanted to make sure in accepting that commission for balance of power, I wanted to make sure that First of all, that it wasn't it wasn't any kind of like a personal political statement, but also that I would try to find a way to thread the needle and to weave my way through this particular commission and to figure out a way to satisfy the commissioner, who in this case was a woman named Bonnie McElveen Hunter, who was a former United States ambassador, who was mentored by Henry Kissinger, and also to reflect in some way this very complicated person. And I knew much less about him, for example, than I had about the Kennedy brothers. When I was asked about it, I didn't know that much at all. And then, frankly, it was a kind of mixed opinion. And, you know, one thinks of the president for whom he served as secretary of state. And that doesn't necessarily make one want to jump out of one's chair and say, yeah, I'm going to do this piece. But it was a very important commission. I felt honored that I was asked, that I was being asked by the Kennedy Center, which is, you know, the national cultural center of our country. And I thought, you yeah, know, well, I have to figure out a way to do this. Um, and so, you know, to just take a moment to, to say the solution that I came up with, which took a long time, was this three movement piece, as you mentioned, and balance of power is a phrase and a concept that runs through all of, of Henry Kissinger's writings. It's so interesting. I wrote this piece in, in 2019, and we think about the uses of the term balance of power in the last three years since I wrote the piece. I'll sort of leave that alone. But, you know, it turned out to be a great title for a piece that came before the struggles of the last few years in this country. So uh, I said, you know, I have, to, I have to read a lot about Henry Kissinger. I have to read and I have to read things that he wrote and I have to read things that others wrote about him. You know, he's a very, um, he's a very controversial figure with some great admirers and some great detractors. And honestly, you know, I could have spent two full years just reading, um, but I, I spent about three months. And so anyway, I came up with this concept of balance of power. And then the three movements are called a sense of history, a sense of humor, and a sense of direction. And that concept was almost as important as writing the piece itself was to figure out how to try to, how to tackle it. And in reading a lot about Henry Kissinger's views of history, and uh, reading this book called Diplomacy, which is absolutely fascinating and a, a quite an interesting and difficult read, I got this kind of overwhelming sense of history as a series of struggles, of a series of conflicts, a series of conflicts for, for power and to try to have a, a balance between different entities. It's a dark view in some ways. So the first movement of the piece, I wanted to get some sense of, it's an overused word, epic, the epic scale of history and suggesting struggle and drama and war all of that and to try to do it just with the orchestra, you know, no spoken word. And then the second movement, which is subtitled Scherzo Politico, right, a sense of humor, was a direct response to a request from Henry Kissinger, who, when having lunch to discuss this project, amazingly enough, asked for, he said, quote, could it be a humorous symphony, unquote. So, you know, the former Secretary of State and one of the most famous political figures of the second half of the 20th century asked me if I could write a humorous symphony, which is the you know most unexpected question. So that set the tone for what would be the second movement of this piece. And then a very, very specific response that I came up with was because his voice is certainly in his in his uh, you know time of prominence was very known as this low, grovelly German accented voice, I decided to compose a duet between contrabassoon and bass clarinet, the two lowest members of the Woodwind family, which is an idea that I never would have come up with if it weren't for this specific request. And so, it, you know, it turned out to work uh, rather well. And then I really wanted an optimistic uh, ending, a, a movement that would 
balance the weight and the drama of the first movement and the kind of darker tone of the first movement. And so this phrase, a sense of direction, is a phrase that I encountered in several places in, in reading Kissinger's writings. And I thought, I'm going to just focus on this idea of a sense of direction. I'm going to give myself composer's license to be more optimistic and then to do something you know, with an orchestra that will allow me to end the piece in an uplifting manner. And it gave me a kind of a reason to do it, that, for that phrase, because I really wanted to end the piece in an optimistic way that says, we are driving somehow forward to the future and we're going to make the future better. So all of that was a response to a really specific commission that honestly, when I first was asked about it, it's just, it scared me because I didn't, and I had no idea what to do or even if I should do it. But, you know, so, so I did that. And then not long after that, I was asked to compose a piece, a much easier commission in a way to compose a fanfare for the inauguration of President Biden. And so, you know, again, the, these these high profile projects that have a political dimension, they came to me and I had to try to decide how to deal with them as best I could. But if you had asked me years ago, did I think I would ever write you know, these particular pieces for these particular occasions, I would have said no. But these, these are the opportunities that came along and I tried to make them work as best I could. So that's a long answer to your question. So it's very clear that art is affected by history, by social movements. But do you think that the decision makers, the powers that be, are affected as much by art or by symphonies? Or in your, you've had a lot of experience in this realm. Uh, is it your goal to kind of move mountains in that way, or to influence big historical movements or conflicts of history, as you said? Yeah, I certainly would never state goals that were quite that lofty, you know, that I was going to sort of, sort of change history in any way with with my music. I mean, at the end of the day, it's music and, uh, you know, it has its limitations. But, you know, apropos of that question, I've just been reading this really fascinating book by John Mauchery, uh, who I, I, you probably know of, you know, as, as somebody who has a very distinguished career as a, as a conductor who was very important um, in the life of Leonard Bernstein in the latter part of his life and worked with him on important pieces, uh, revisions of those pieces, such as Candide um, and, uh, and A Quiet Place, his opera written toward the end of his life, and who has conducted all of these great orchestras and opera companies around the world and has in recent years been writing, this is a third really fascinating book. And this book, The War on Music, which is quite recent, deals with that question of yours in a really specific way. I'm almost through with it. I'm in the last chapter and have been finding it completely fascinating, uh, his analysis, kind of a kind of social history of how politics and specifically the politics of war in the First World War and the Second World War and then the Cold War influenced the course of music. I won't take it upon myself to try to summarize his points, but it's completely fascinating and has me thinking about this topic in some ways that I haven't really thought about it before, about the, the ways in which those conflicts shaped the course of music history. And, and one of the big points that he makes is, is we're missing, in a sense, so much repertoire that we ought not to be missing um, from composers that kind of have been erased, or at least a, a big chunk of their output has been erased from our consciousness because of these movements that are, that are tied up with politics. So, yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. And of course, yeah, I think if, if one thinks about politics and music, I think one thinks, thinks about Shostakovich, <laughs> you know, most of all, and how he was able to survive uh, his particular kind of insane and terrifying political situation and how it impacted the choices that he made. So I certainly, when I think about that, 
I feel very fortunate that, you know, I've never felt like my life was in danger if I didn't write the right kind of piece. You know, at the end of the day, it's just music. But again, I'll say that I just, I never anticipated those particular kinds of commissions and those commissions come with a, a high profile. So it is something that I, I feel like I have to take very seriously when those commissions come along. But, you know, if somebody just wants me to write something that's a little bit lighter, um, that's okay too. <laughs> to ask you just about this idea of telling stories in sound. Yes. You talked a little bit about obviously the American voice, but can you talk like for Ellis Island? I mean, this is a full scale opera. You know, this is an oratorio. Its purpose is to dramatize history. Can you talk a little bit about the language that you use to actually tell stories, maybe harmonically, rhythmically, melodically? Like how do you get across? I mean, I love opera because it kind of tells us the emotions behind symphonic chord progressions, or when a composer does this, they meant this. Um, I'd be curious about that idea of telling stories and the language you use. Sure, absolutely. I mean, this idea of narrative, of the narrative power of a symphony orchestra is something that I think about a lot. And it's interesting. So once again, you refer to Ellis Island, you know, my best known piece. And what kind of genre is Ellis Island? Somebody actually just asked me this question yesterday. And, you know, so it's not really an opera and it's not really an oratorio and it's not really a cantata. And what do we call it? And so, I mean, in a sense, it's kind of a piece unto itself. And I just say, and it's very unwieldy. I say Ellis Island, the dream of America for actors and orchestra with projected images. So that's a kind of long unwieldy series of words, but it tells the story about what this piece is and what it's not. And a really important part of the answer to your question, I think, is the idea of text. Is there text or is there not text? Is the text sung or is the text spoken or is there no text at all? And all of those things are going to be extremely important factors, I think, in determining the nature of the music. So in the case of Ellis Island, I chose to compose that piece for what I call actors and orchestra. Now, it's fine if you call them narrators, but I always refer to them as actors because the stories are told in the first person. They're not told in the third person. So if we think about, for example, Aaron Copland's Lincoln Portrait, which is maybe the most famous American piece for narrator and orchestra. It is in fact narrator because the narrator is speaking in the third person and describes Abraham Lincoln and says, and this is what he said, colon, and then we hear what Lincoln said. And in Ellis Island, The Dream of America, the actors are reading excerpts from the Ellis Island Oral History Project. And because they're reading things that I edited together from interviews, they're speaking in the first person. And so, that, for example, the very first line that is said by the first actress after the orchestral prologue is, I was dreaming to come to America. And then she goes on to describe her life and the actual real woman whose story is being told is then reciting in the first person. So it's different than I think in terms of what the goal has to be of the music orchestrally. It's different when one is underscoring spoken dialogue than if one is accompanying sung dialogue. And it's certainly then different if there's no dialogue whatsoever, if there's no spoken words whatsoever. And then the music is given all of the responsibility to carry the narrative. So, so the answer to your question has to do with all, all of those things and what is the specific task at hand. So in this piece, Balance of Power, you know, the centerpiece of this, of this most recent album with the London Symphony Orchestra, um, and that was premiered by the National Symphony Orchestra at the Kennedy Center less than a year ago, here I had this... Uh, this extremely specific kind of commission about this historical figure um, who is still alive. And, and, and I just explained earlier about the approach that I took, but then, you know, so how then as a composer, how do I try to create a sense of history? And that's a big question. And again, it's very subjective. And the piece begins with a substantial horn solo, a solo horn in, in the case of the recording played by the wonderful principal horn of the London Symphony, Timothy Jones a horn solo over strings and the nature of that horn solo 
And that large theme is something that I try to convey history. So how does one convey history? And if you want to get a little bit technical about it, so it's modal, essentially. I mean, it's either it has pentatonic or it has mixolydian elements to it. And the chords um, resolve basically to perfect fifths. And so this kind of open sound, there's an older sound that we associate with perfect fifths. But it's not just, you know, like parallel moving fifths or something that would be, that would sound pretty anachronistic. But the kinds of chords that I've chosen, sus2 chords, sus4 chords, this kind of thing, and mixolydian. So this is very subjective, but the combination of the nature of the melody, the nature of the harmony underneath that melody, the instrumentation, the soaring solo horn in a high register, the very prominent placement of the solo horn, all of this I'm trying to set up at the very beginning of that movement, a quality that can suggest history to somebody. Now that's very subjective, but that was my attempt to do it. And then that theme becomes the basis of the whole first section of the movement and is developed, restated the kinds of things that composers do with orchestras. The instrumentation has changed, counter lines are added, but then it moves to a very fast agitated section that is essentially it's in B flat minor and, and it's dark and it is aggressive. And rhythmically we have figures like it has a kind of military quality to it. It's being driven by percussion. It has a full loud orchestration. The brass play very high with this sort of accompaniment underneath it. It's martial in quality. It suggests conflict and battle. And, you know, so I'm not inventing the wheel with all of that. These composers have come before me, Shostakovich in particular, Britton, um, Mahler, who have done this. You know, they've done it in a way that I can never equal, but they've created a body of repertoire on which I can draw as a composer. And somehow in my brain, I'm going to use that word osmosis again. Somehow there's an osmosis that takes place and lets me hopefully find my own pathway into this, but I'm not reinventing the wheel. And so, you know, people who hear this and who are knowledgeable listeners in some sense, who've listened to all these composers, yes, they're going to hear connections. Of course, they're going to hear connections, but hopefully they'll hear it in a way that is my own. Um, and, and will allow me to suggest these things musically. So again, that's kind of a long answer to your question, but that, that's one really specific example. And there's no text, right? There's no text. There's just a title of a movement, a sense of history. And then the rest is all about the notes that I choose. So you're kind of activating pathways sort of subconsciously based on what people have heard before. And we talked about John Williams earlier. I was just listening to his new theme, which is maybe the last Star Wars music he's going to compose for Obi-Wan, that new series. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard that, but immediately I went to opening of Bruckner 4. Just mm -hmm. like you mentioned, the, the the solo horn over the strings, you know, with a string tremolo. It's it's almost exactly with, with open fifths, you know, dee, dee, ba, ba, bee, you know, this back and forth. Yeah. Um, and, and it suggests, I think there's history there, but I also think it's a lonely voice, you know, a voice that has been there for a while that is is sort of maybe recovering in some way. Um, yeah. I don't know. And that's, and when I think of Kissinger, you know, that must, leadership must feel like that. You know, you're the lone horn over the sea of everybody else, of everything else. And you have to make these decisions and you don't know how history is going to judge you. You're doing the best you can at the given moment. And I always love those finding, listening to those. I mean, I was just watching E.T. And I can't remember what the piece was, but there was just a simple chord progression that the John Williams that I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's from that's from classical music somewhere. So sure. And and, and there's there is a continuity there, of course, that I mean, John Williams is, is uniquely gifted in some sense and uniquely situated in terms of what he's done um, and the output of his music and, and the number of people who have been touched by his music, the number of people with whom he has communicated musically is vast because of the popularity of these movies and the distribution of them around the world. And so that's something that, for example, Wagner could never have achieved because the, the technology simply didn't exist, although I think he, he probably would have embraced it. But I think one can draw a line backwards in terms of the continuity Immediately before John Williams, I think one can go to Korngold and this body of music that Korngold composed, like The Adventures of Robin Hood and King's Row and these other Warner Brothers movies that were clearly influential on John Williams and also this great, stunning, melodic gift that both Korngold and Williams had. And then you can go backwards further from there. And, you know, I think Mahler and Strauss and Puccini 
all influenced Korngold to an immense extent, who subsequently influenced John Williams, who subsequently influenced many others. And then if we go back further, I, I think you can, it's not a, a big leap to go back to Wagner and to all of these innovations that Wagner um, brought in the middle of the 19th century into you know, operatic practice. And I think one can you know, you know, go back even further than that and go to Beethoven. So there is a continuity, and, and I think we all, we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. So it's always a question of choosing the notes <laughs> that will evoke the thing that we wish to evoke without sounding exactly like something else. And that is a trick. That is the hard part. And John Williams is especially gifted at doing that particular thing and at creating a countless number of themes and melodies that an enormous amount of people in the world can actually sing. I mean, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's more than a billion people who actually can sing something from Star Wars. That's a staggering feat. So that's, I think, attributable both to his own gifts and also to the success and the distribution of these movies with which he's been associated. So, you know, will, will anybody in the future be able to top such a feat? Um, it's hard to say. <laughs> Peter Boyer, it's been so great to have you on One Symphony. You can check out Peter's music wherever you listen to your music. His latest album happens to be some phenomenal orchestral works called Balance of Power. But there's also Rolling River, variations on Shenandoah, beautiful string piece, Radiance, Fanfare, and Elegy. So much great music on there. And Peter, it's been such a great time talking with you today and sharing your voice, both musically and historically. And I'm looking forward to uh, playing your music in the future and hearing about your upcoming projects. And thank you for joining me. Thank you, Devin. It's been a pleasure. Good questions and nice to have time to talk about them in, in some detail. So I hope it's been helpful for your listeners. Thank you for joining us on One Symphony. Thanks to Peter Boyer for sharing his music and insights. You can get more info at propulsivemusic.com. Works of his heard today include Fanfare, Hymn and Finale, Elegy, Balance of Power, and Ellis Island, The Dream of America. Thank you to all the amazing performers featured on today's show, including Peter Boyer, the London Symphony Orchestra, the Philharmonia Orchestra, the Staatskapelle Dresden, the Rundfunkchor Leipzig, and Peter Schreier. Thanks to the record labels Naxos and Universal International Music for making this episode possible. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. Music